Hello, you are listening to No Such Word as Can't with me, Hazel McBride. I was always told growing up that there was no such word as can't, and I genuinely believe that that mentality instilled a belief in me that anything was possible if I just set my mind to it. As someone who started off with a seemingly impossible dream and somehow made it my reality, I want to help more people achieve their goals by giving them actionable advice, as well as sharing stories from others who have done the same. Today, I am so excited to reconnect with a former teammate of mine, and I use the word teammate in only the loosest sense, because I think we only swam on the same team for about three weekends, but I was honored then, and I am honored now to be joined by the one and only Hannah Miley. Hello, Hannah. Hello. That was a lovely intro. <laughs> oh, I could I could go on with all of your many, many accolades. Um, but thank you oh. so much for agreeing to be a guest on my podcast. No worries. Thank you very much for having me. Looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm so excited. So for those of you um, who are potentially not familiar with uh, Hannah's exceptional swimming career, just a few of her highlights include the title of two-time Commonwealth gold medalist, former world short course champion, European short and long course champion, as well as three-time Olympic athlete. I mean, I'm exhausted just listing all of that. <laughs> <laughs> How does it feel to kind of to have things, because I, I know you're no stranger to being interviewed and talking about your career, but how does it feel now looking back and thinking, oh my God, I can't believe I did all that? Um, it, it's going to sound really, really bizarre. It takes a little while for it to sink in because for me, it was second nature being in a pool and, you know, getting up, doing the training, doing the competitions, like that was my job and that was what was expected of me. So for me, sometimes it didn't feel as astounding as it is when I hear people who talk about it and kind of say it in awe. Now that I've finished being able to kind of look back at it and really truly understand it, I guess, from another perspective, I kind of, I, I need to start, you know, give myself a bit more self-love and actually yes. appreciate, you know, it's been incredible. It's been really cool and actually, you know, learn to appreciate it a little bit more. So no, it's nice being able to hear, hear back and enjoy it as well <laughs> for sure and I think you made a very good point like that was your life it was kind of swimming or not just swimming but the wider world of you know athletes like that at that level all of the people around you are doing similar things you know everyone that you're competing against is at a similar level has achieved similar things you know you most of you all have you know medals gold medals and records world records European records and it's not until you take a step back or you start talking to people who haven't done those things that you realize what an incredible achievement it all was. Yeah, definitely. And it is, it's just putting it into perspective because I think as well, you've got your own expectations. And, you know, I kind of came into the sport with the knowledge of I love being in the water. I was very competitive, but the desire and dream to be an elite athlete was something that just evolved you know, I didn't set out as a youngster being like, that's going to be me in like, you know, two years time, five years time or whatever. I just enjoyed the moments and just took the ability. Of, okay, I can beat the boys when I swim. Nobody <laughs> else in my class can swim. I love showing off and, you know, all the little fun things as a kid that you kind of take for granted now. Um, and then I just kind of went through the ranks and it was almost like, you know, going through a computer game, you complete one level there's another level and then there's another and I think for me it was just always having that goal to chase and being like right I've achieved this what's next mm. and just that stepping ladder just allowed me to kind of progress through those levels and something so yeah kind of actually looking back and seeing it as such um yeah it's kind of funny because it's, it's given me a lot of skills and tool set that I've now appreciated because before I thought as a swimmer you're in a bubble you know it's very much in a bubble and you it's eat, you in a lane rope sleep <laughs> yep very much so and um, now that I come away from it, it's, you know, there's still a lot of things that are quite similar, but I've had to have a bit of a deeper thought process from it and learn to appreciate the pressures, the experience and the expectation I had of being an elite athlete can transfer into some bits. But having the confidence to do that as well has been, uh, been interesting because I was very confident as a swimmer. Coming away from swimming, it's almost like you're comfortable in what you're wearing and all of a sudden mm -hmm. you've been given this new outfit you've never worn before and it's a little bit are people looking at me? Is this right? Am I okay? So yeah. I have to keep checking up on myself. So that self-reflection, you know, being able to piece together, well, what did, what made me me, you know, yeah. what was success for me? And 
yes, the medals were great, but <laughs> some of my successes came from not just the medals, which is kind of nice to feel and uh, talk about as well. Yeah. So, I mean, it's no secret that you went so incredibly far. You went all the way to the very top, you know, in your swimming career. But <laughs> where did it all start? Because swimming for you was very much a family affair. Yes, it was. Um, so, yes, yeah, so my dad was the first person to get me in a pool. Um, he was very fascinated in water. He, he he is the reason why I think I got to where I am today. And he swam when he was younger, but he he wasn't able to take it, I think, to the level that you wanted to get to. His mom and dad didn't have a car financially yeah. as well, paying for competitions. It just wasn't feasible for him, but he still had that passion and drive for it. Um, he swam and did coaching in the army, and then he did some triathlon. I think he did master swimming. And then when my mom and dad moved up to the northeast of Scotland, had me, and he started coaching at the local swimming club, and I ended up joining. But he taught me to swim when I was little, and I think it was purely out of curiosity because babies are quite fascinating when they're in water like yeah they take to it very very quickly mm -hmm. which is always amazing so my dad was curious about that freaked my mom out I think <laughs> um, <laughs> dunking me under and mom was like what are you doing my dad's like fine it's all good yeah um and it was a really important skill like I think my dad had set out knowing that myself and my younger brother it's like it's so important to learn to swim because we're surrounded you know we're an island Britain's in an island, you've got sea, you've got water parks, you've got lakes, you've got rivers, you've got open water swimming, diving, synchronous, like there's so many activities that you can do. And especially the water, water, the water mm -hmm. in the north of Scotland, not only is it yeah. so ridiculously cold, you know, yes. there, it's wild. <laughs> it is wild up it there. Is very much so. So having a good baseline for being able to swim I thought was really really key so we went through the lessons um council lessons and fun fact we I was doing with Inverary pool you've got a shallow end uh the pool starts gradually decreasing the sort of height so it gets deeper as the further towards the other end of the swimming pool you go so I was in the middle section so could just about touch the floor but you know feet were starting to come off a little bit I was progressing from the middle section into the deep end which I think was like three or four meters deep did not want to go up I was terrified of the deep end because I was like I can't touch the floor this is not good oh no so had a bit of a strop and you know I eventually obviously got over that fear and I was fine but <laughs> you know even as a kid it was like oh no I don't want to do this but my dad persisted and then yeah I kind of appreciate his persistence and consistency with it because it made a big difference and I overcame my fear because I realized there's nothing to be afraid of and yeah. um because and, yeah, there's I just kind of went from there yeah like it's I mean, swimming is is a life-saving skill. It's a skill that all children, yes. you know, should have available to them. And the majority of children do go through swimming lessons. But there kind of comes a moment where you you graduate from swimming lessons and the majority of kids kind of leave swimming behind and only use that skill when they, you know, if they're on holiday and they're going to the pool or into the sea or something. What yeah. do you remember the moment when you decided to start, you know, for me, it was development club um to then go into the world of competitive swimming was it your dad that was kind of helping you into that um a little bit because he was already coaching there it was just a natural progression for me yeah. to go from the council lessons to the club and I just thrived I was as I say I was so competitive so whenever I was in the lane so each lane was the different level of server that you were and the top end lane were where all the big kids were you know the, the faster swimmers and I always aimed to be just as quick as them so I was that annoying little kid that would sprint the warm-up just to try and keep up with the bigger <laughs> kids um like my competitive drive was huge like I just loved to race um you know sometimes it resulted in me winning sometimes it resulted in me coming fourth or fifth like it didn't matter I just loved that freedom of being like right what have you got? I'm going to go yeah. up against you. Yeah. Um, and a few younger and I think brothers it's, as well. I think so. it's, so, oh yeah, your brother. So you had the competitiveness <laughs> even within the family. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But I think Very it's so, so funny to think back and, you know, obviously my swimming career did not go anywhere near what, what yours did, but I remember the exact same feeling when I was younger of, I want to win. And it didn't matter how quote unquote insignificant the competition was <laughs> you know like you said even in training I'm like no like I want to come in first I want to be the best and you know looking back yeah. I think it, it must have been so funny to see like a seven-year-old being so hyped up and so like I want to win and I want to do this like oh it must have just been so adorable um 
but swimming is a sport that takes so much sacrifice you know when you decide to do it competitively it takes over your life how did you deal with the juggle you know growing up high school etc you know having to to train four or five hours a day going away to competitions to swimming camps you know what kind of you talked about swimming making you develop so many different skills um how did you cope with the juggle um that's a very good question and it's some part of me was like I'm actually not 100% sure but there was <laughs> I, I'm quite a literal person so from a very young age my dad knew that I'm a very literal person we were uh, going to sidetrack slightly but I will there is a reason to it um so we were we had family over um and friends over to our house and I think I was about three or four at the time we had a cat called Bruce biggest fluffiest cat ever and if you have a cat you kind of will know they just have this knack of being in places that you don't want them to be in and we have a low sitting coffee table people's drinks and food were there and of course Bruce would just big fluffy feather duster type tail would just sweep his tail across all the food and all the drinks and obviously people don't want cat hair in their food so my dad was getting really frustrated because he would try and move Bruce away Bruce would always come back so he was getting frustrated and he said right Hannah can you just kick the cat out so little me just comes, picks up Bruce and he's a big farm cat. I go to the back door, open it. My right foot swings back, makes no. contact with Bruce as he <laughs> flings out the door. So it's like, Ring, as he just goes out the door. Oh um, my gosh. I obviously got into a lot of trouble afterwards and through my tears, it was like, but you told me yeah. to kick the cat out. And I think from then my dad realized he had to be careful what he said to yeah. me because that's just the person that I am. Like, if you tell me to do something, I will do it. I won't kind of question it or, you know, mm. I'll kind of have a little think about it, but it's like, right, okay, I trust you. I'll do that. So going through school and going through, and that's probably why swimming suited me quite a fair bit. I got to live in my own head a little bit. It's not like other sports where you can chat during warm-ups or cool yeah. downs unless you're doing social kick. Um, and I got to live in my own head a little bit. And I always knew I was a little bit different and I loved being a little bit different. You know, girls would get out like 10, 15 minutes early from the pool to do hair and makeup. And I firmly made the choice to not do that. If everybody turned right, I would always turn left sort of thing. Sometimes it worked, sometimes to my detriment, because it was obvious that I was desperately trying to be different. And swimming, I think, eventually gave me that identity of embracing that difference. But um, being able to balance it, I would actually because the teachers give me homework and it's like this needs to be done to make sure that I'd still remember what was taught I would actually spend all of my lunch period in the library I would have my food go to the library and sit and do my homework um and you know some of my friends used to tease me being like oh if you were everyone who wants to be a millionaire it's like oh what's the one place that Hannah Bailey would always do her homework or get her work done where would you find her at lunchtime would it be a the dining hall b outside c the library and it's like it's always the library yeah <laughs> So, and for me, that was just natural. Um, my dad did help planning because being in the army as well, routine was very key and being able to plan and strategize and all that. So he taught me to create like a timetable and, um, <coughs> excuse me, I don't have it actually to hand. Uh, obviously, I won't be able to show you, but to <laughs> describe it as well. Um, I had a weekly planner. So I had Monday to Sunday and I had the time that I would wake up for training and then each of the subjects that I had at school when I had my break, when I had study time and then when I had uh, training again in the evening. So it gave me an idea when I had gaps and I could choose to decide, right, this is a study time or this is a time to just chill out and have a break. Mm-hmm. And at the time, it was a bit of a pain <laughs> because, you know, you kind of want to chill out a little bit more, but it gave my parents a hand to be like, right, okay, it's half past four. Hannah says that she's supposed to be studying. She's watching TV, right? Hannah, come on, you said you were going to study, yeah. get the study done. Same as, you know, it's half past four, right? She's supposedly done two hours of studying. Oh, she's still studying, right? She needs a break. Hannah, go and have a break. So, you know, it kind of gave the whole family because as you say, swimming does get, it is, you, you do have to sacrifice a lot and it's not just individually, it's family as well because it is such an involved sport. You know, you're up at ungodly hours in the morning, and then it's, t- you know, driving here, there and everywhere, depending how far away you are from the pool, there's competitions and competitions aren't just an afternoon, it's an all day thing. And especially with two younger brothers as well. My mom says she remembers all the trips to Glasgow when I was racing, she would take my brothers to the um, clothing outlets and go shopping <laughs> just oh to try and get my goodness. brothers entertained. 
yeah and you guys had quite a drive you know to come down to like Toll Cross in Glasgow like I feel very lucky that I'm just from the outskirts of Glasgow so it was like a 30 minute drive but you know for people who are who are listening who don't really understand so this is you as a teenager you're going to school give people an idea of how many hours you were actually spent like say you had a competition at the weekend give people an idea of how much swimming you would be doing in that week so for a competition um like a competition as I say is an all-day thing warm-up starts at eight session can start at nine and you'll have three sessions within the day so normally they're like they try and stay within three hours but they always overran <laughs> always so you'd finish the session at like 12 or half 11 warm-ups at 12 next session starts at one and again finishes at like four and then next session warm-up starts at five and yeah you're finished about like seven half seven in the evening so you're there pretty much 12 hours and that's the saturday and sunday training in the morning um i was in the water from six till eight and then i was at school for registration at half eight um have my full day of school and then I was literally straight from school I was lucky enough that my school was literally right next door to the pool so I would just walk across um and then uh, it was swimming from half three until five uh and then some of the sessions depending on what day it is I would have gym as well either straight after swimming or, or I'd have gym late morning as I started getting older um less subjects but more free time supposedly for studying but I kind of used it as a chance to get in the gym or mm-hmm. extra swim sessions here and there um and I'd be in the gym three times a week so I was swimming so from the age of like 14 15 I was swimming about 10 11 times a week it did go up to 12 times a week at one point so it was double sessions Sunday right through to Friday um and then I was in the gym three times a week on top of that session length varied um our pool we were kind of at the mercy of our council so public sessions and obviously the income side was more important so sometimes our sessions did get cut short but they were good and allowing me kind of like an extra benefit of being able to get in a little bit earlier or doing you know I even had these um this lane rope specifically made to cut a normal if you imagine what a normal width of a swimming lane was to half the size of it so they have suckers to basically half the size of it so that I could still swim but there was a bit of a barricade between me and the public. So the public uh. could moan that there was less space, but I could still swim and not get battered by the public as well. Amazing. Um, so the pool, yeah, the pool were really helpful with that. So the session could vary between an hour and 45. And then on a Sunday, we had our big session, which was a three hour session. Um, so lots of food was brought on poolside. Okay, <laughs> you guys can't see my face so there, much. but I, as soon as she said three hours, I was like, hell no, <laughs> let's not do that. But, you know, everything yeah. Hannah is saying is so right, you know, to be able to get to that kind of level in any, you know, elite sport, it's so much determination, self-motivation, mm-hmm. time management, and um, all of that kind of comes into play through your teenage years. And then you kind of get to a point where you realize, okay, I could really make it. I'm mm-hmm. at the very top end of this sport. Was it ever a question for you that you wouldn't keep going? Or was it a no-brainer, like, I am aiming for the Olympics? Um, so I remember writing, we had this thing called logbooks where we would keep track of what the sessions were doing. As a kid, you never see, oh, it's just more work that the coach is asking us to do. But actually, I still have those logbooks. And being able to look back and remind yourself of what you did training session-wise and what you thought at the time of being like, oh, my God, that's a horrific set. And you look back and you think, oh, actually, it wasn't that bad. <laughs> like your emotion to it is very very different but it allowed you to express how you felt and it allowed you as well to have a bit of communication so that responsibility of making note of it was really really key but at the front of the logbooks it was always write down your short-term goal mid-term goal long-term goal and a lot of kids would write you know times you know I want to break you know one minute 20 for 100 meters breaststroke or five minutes for the 400 am so I had a couple that were time-based um, and then the bottom one where it was like, what's your long-term goal? And I wrote, I'd like to get to the Olympic Games and stand on the podium, brackets, preferably with a gold medal around my neck. And that <laughs> so was specific. a 12. <laughs> Very specific. <laughs> Literal, see? Yes. <laughs> um, so, so there, I kind of had written it out. And the funny thing is, when I wrote it out, it was something that I think a lot of kids had started writing, you know, oh, I want to go to the Olympic Games. And I guess I didn't compute really, but looking back at it, I can kind of see the little subliminal things that my dad was doing the experiences that I was exposed to um and 
yeah, my dad doesn't get enough credit, I think, for what he's done because he, his involvement in swimming is hugely impactful and possibly the reason why I am the athlete I am today um, because a, a lot of the things I had to do as a teenager was through choice. Um, and it might sound like, well, that's obvious, but <laughs> hear me out on this. So my dad was a full-time helicopter pilot. He would not always be there for training sessions. So when he knew he was flying, so sometimes we'd be up at the same time or he's even left before I'd gotten up, which is at like five in the morning. Yeah, insane o'clock. He's gone because he's got a flight, you know, to take people off to the oil rigs in the North Sea. Um, he's left a script as to what the sessions to be. And he had a logbook as well. So I would handwrite out because obviously the logbook was like the Bible. It was a very precious thing. Do not get it wet or damaged. So I'd handwrite and copy Which is, it, which is a then, challenge uh, when you're taking it to training. Do not get it wet or damaged <laughs> like that. True. I know. And the thing is, a lot of people are like, oh, well, you could have just changed the set. And thinking back, I'm like, yeah, I could have. But again, my dad trusted me because I was literal. Write this out. Okay. <laughs> I'd write it out exactly word for word. Um, hand it to the volunteer coach who was there at the time and run through the set. And then, uh, you know, my Nokia 3210, I would text my dad <laughs> being like, yep, session was good or felt rubbish or, you know, we communicate that way. So he taught me to take responsibility for my myself. Um, mm -hmm. I had to set my own alarm. So, you know, his methodology was, well, you, you have to want to be there. Yeah. So it's like, if you don't wake yourself up, then that's a sign that it's not meant to be. Mm -hmm. So I would always wake myself up. And then sometimes I would make him some toast and a cup of tea. If he was there to coach, so he could take that to the pool. Then he would drive us to the pool. Um, even when I started to learn to drive, I would, you know, there was one time where my brothers, one brother was not very good at waking up in the morning. <laughs> and I recall leaving him behind. Because oh my goodness. He didn't get up. So, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that was my mindset. And mm -hmm. There were times when in the afternoon I had no volunteer coach. I was training on my own because the club times were not, you know, they weren't training that afternoon, but I got um, a lane to myself in the public session and he would send the session over and I would just get on with it. And again, I could have quite easily sat in the locker and said, yeah, I've done it as my nose grows because I'm lying, yeah. but I just couldn't do that because my mindset was well what are my competitors with doing you know would they sit and miss out this training session mm. no so my mindset was always thinking about what are my competitors are doing what am I doing that's going to separate me from my competitors that's going to give me that edge make me that different person so that is kind of what I think my dad did as a coach was he gave me the opportunity to make the choices sure he nudged the environment and yeah. gave me the opportunity but ultimately he allowed me to be the one that made those choices and I think that respect for me as an athlete I would give him back as a coach and I think that's how we got the balance right and developed me into that athlete because I think we want so much for like the next generation coming through or we want the kids to do well that if we do too much for them it takes away that learning and understanding and that responsibility and I think there's a lot in learning in actually being brave and just trying it and doing it for yourself yeah I would forget my swimsuit. I would lose countless swimming hats. I was always in trouble because I was always losing my swimming hat. Like you then eventually learn to pack spares, to always have, you know, a spare hat for competitions, this and the other. So yeah, there's experiences that you don't want because I hate you getting things wrong. Um, but sometimes it's important sometimes to be able to make those mistakes and be allowed to make mistakes so that you can learn from it. I think sometimes we try and be too perfect too soon. Mm -hmm. And I think that in itself can hinder your ability to have that growth development, both mentally and physically as well for, for uh, the elite performance. Um, I'm very conscious. I have kind of a sidetrack <laughs> from the question that you know. No, don't worry about it at all. It's all <laughs> such, you know, valuable yeah. information. You know, I think people can take so much away from, from that type of mindset. Um, yeah. But what was your, yeah, good, what was your dad's reaction yeah. when uh, you both found out that you'd made it? to your first Olympics, 19 years old, 2008, mm -hmm. Beijing. What was his reaction when, when you told him or did you find out together? We found out together. So that competition was fun. Um, probably not for him because we'd done all the training up until that point. And it was funny. We'd sort of spoken to this uh, sports psychologist called Steve Peters. Uh, people might have read The Chimp Paradox. Um, and he worked a lot with British cycling. So British swimming were really lucky in getting a, 
you know, kind of a private consultation with him and learned a lot. And he talked about, you know, your chimp brain and your natural instincts and what you, um, <coughs> excuse me, leaning towards. Um, but the one thing he always said was never ask an athlete how they're feeling, because sometimes if you're too in tune with how you're feeling, you can really upset the sort of balance that your mindset is in. So we always made a joke of saying, never say the F word, because my dad loves to ask, how do I feel? It's like, after the warm up, how do you feel? How's that feeling in the water? So I always remind him being like, you can't ask me how you feel. And we started <laughs> cheating slightly, being like, so how does the neuron receptors sensate when you put your palm of your hand in the water? And I'm like, that's cheating. <laughs> that's really cheating. But um, going into that competition, you know, the mindset was, right, this is the qualifying time. So we had to do heats in the evening. So normally when we're competing, it's heats in the morning, finals in the evening. But the Beijing setup was heats in the evening, finals were the following morning. So we had to and do is that time because of... Evening. Is that because the of rights. the TV? Yeah. Yeah. The Americans had won the TV rights and to suit um, their main time. I think it was New York time. Um, evening heat equated, I think, to um, morning time, New York, and then the finals. It, it was something to do with like setting to it, the American time zone. So, Did that change things psychologically for you at all? Like, was it difficult to get your head around? Like. <sighs> A little bit yeah but then when you realize that well every other swimmer is in the same boat so True. you know you're not getting any special treatment so it's yeah. like okay just got to get on with it and that in itself was quite helpful but um so we kind of knew the target time I needed to do and I knew it was possible to do it um but it was just trying to get that nice calm mindset and uh just before the competition or my I was about to go for the call room to you know register for my final and I had my hood up, I had my headphones on, folded my arms, and I knew exactly the timing that I needed to do. Again, I'm very methodical. I know what time I need to be at the pool, time I do my warm up, time I put my racing suit on. Like I have everything laid out so nothing will scare me. Even if it goes a bit off schedule, I have a rough idea of what the running order should be. And I think I remember seeing my dad corner my eye, kind of like dancing a little bit, being like, should you not be going up there? And I remember him nudging my foot, being like, you know, to catch my attention. And I didn't say anything. I literally just turned and looked up at him. And apparently the glare that I gave him was enough for him to be like, okay, she knows what she's doing. I'm backing <laughs> off. That <laughs> um, is like, I'm in the zone, dad. I'm in the zone. Yes, Stop it. <laughs> exactly. Yep. <laughs> um, no distractions. And yeah. And then from there to being behind the blocks to racing, you know, I don't remember much of the race. And that's kind of when you know you're in that right mindset because you don't want to think, you just want to do. Mm -hmm. don't know whether that's like a, a star trek or a star wars quote you know don't <laughs> yeah don't think just do um and it literally is and as soon as i touch the wall and i realize that done the time i've come first i am going to the olympics and it was just such a buzz like such an elation so i got out of the pool run around to swim down because your body's full of lactic acid so you want to yeah. cool off but my dad's there giving him a big hug and it was just like we've done it we're we're now on to like you know this is the boss stage of you know a computer yeah. game this is like the final stage of where you know most athletes want to go and for me I think it wasn't until I got to the Olympics that I felt I could call myself an elite athlete mm -hmm. and it was weird because I've been to Commonwealth Games uh, I've been to European Championships but between 2006 and 2008 to when I qualified for the Olympics I actually had a window where I completely missed like four teams or four international competitions because of one swim um it was a cycle where you had to compete at a championships, qualify to compete for the next championships. So, it, you know, it was making the team smaller and smaller because if you misfired and didn't qualify at that meet, that was it. You weren't going to make the next three meets. So um, European championships, I remember the qualifying time for 400 AM was like four minutes, 45. And I thought, OK, that's fine. I went 446 in the heats. Ah, got this in the bag. Always go faster in the final. I got a little bit too cocky and went 447 in the final. And then because I missed that swim, um, I, meant I couldn't qualify for the world championships. I missed competing at the world and European short course championships. World championships the following year in 2007, um, they raced uh, British championships in parallel. Time I did at British would have won me a silver medal at the world. <laughs> and that would have pre-selected me for the Olympics. And then I meant I could have done the European championship. So yeah, it was such a big mistake 
and it on such was, a like yeah really for people who aren't in swimming mm-hmm. like for us that's actually quite well I suppose for a 400 not as much as if you were doing like 100 like two seconds yeah. two seconds isn't that much um mm-hmm. and to lose out on that many opportunities <laughs> because of two seconds yeah it was what two years we- worth of no international racing because of that two seconds so, did it make it I had a point to prove did it make it not necessarily easier going into the Olympics after that did it make you more determined to prove yourself at that Olympics yes it did it, it really um gave me a a kind of a motto to follow so one of the mottos I always lived by was if you do what you've always done you'll get what you've always got dare to mm. do something a bit different so every cycle we'd always try and change things up even though I was swimming an awful lot I would always try and do maybe a sport or an activity that wasn't swimming based to keep mental sort of mental health as well so that was something a bit different something new I would learn something new and I would challenge myself because I'd give me a chance to you know put me in a position that is slightly out with my comfort zone um but after that swim I came up with a new message of everything happens for a reason and I might not know what that reason is at that moment in time but it will come clearer in the future so I gave, I called that swim my kick up the bum swim because basically it stopped me from being complacent because I think I was starting to become complacent. Mm-hmm. You know, I felt I was at the stage of, okay, I feel like I'm doing really well. Things are going the way that I want them to. You kind of, your ego's inflated. And that was kind of the kick in the teeth that I think I needed. It was a reality check of being like, okay, you're not as good as you think you are. Um, you need to be taken down a peg or two. And actually you need to work a little bit harder. So if you want to get back up there, you're going to have to put the work in. So yeah, so it gave me that drive and focus to not yeah. let that experience ever happen again. Um, and what was it like? Just, yeah. What was it like then at the Olympics for the first time? What What was that? I mean, I can only imagine the atmosphere <laughs> and how it felt. You know, you were only 19 going in. Yeah. What was the whole experience like? Because especially the Beijing Olympics, they were I remember watching the opening ceremony and it was just like out of this world epic. So yeah. what was that experience like? Um, lots of emotions. So I actually turned 19 on the opening ceremony. So my birthday is the 8th of August. And I think the number eight is like a lucky number yeah, in China. I, so yep. it was like the 8th. of. So everyone was like, oh, Hannah, we're going to throw this massive birthday party for you where the whole world, sporting world's invited. You can't go because you're racing the next day. <laughs> so oh my like, goodness, you it. didn't get to go to the um, opening ceremony in person. No, oh, we never no. do because we're always the first uh, first sport to start the next day. So even though Mark Forster was the flag bearer, so we did stay up to watch him. But because we are literally competing the following day, it would ruin yeah. a lot of taker plans. So yeah, we always get to go to the closing, but not the opening. But yeah, you kind of hit with a lot of emotion. There's excitement. So it's like, I'm going to the Olympics. I can now call myself an Olympian. That's like a title that will never be taken away from Absolutely. You. And then it's like the freebies. It's like all the free kits. So you go to Birmingham <laughs> for the kitting out day and you're going around all these different stations. And it's like your jumpers, your tracksuit, your smart attire. And, um, and it's like, you know, and they're just given the stuff and you're like, oh, this is so cool. So you end up with like three big suitcases. And it's like, right got the eight hour drive from Birmingham all the way back home to kind of but we've you know loaded up with bags and my dad was a coach as well so he also had bags so my poor mum like six suitcases filled with Olympic kit (laughs) I know um and it was just like you're so excited and then when you're there like you're kind of overwhelmed because there's so much to take in so you get put in what's called a village which is basically in the name it's like a little town you've got lots of high-rise flats each nation will take over certain flats um you have your like little buses that take you around because it's quite a big venue um there's a food hall which is open 24 7 which is amazing and it's got I think it's like three football fields big and you've got you know you've got your Asian food you've got your uh, like Italian food you've got salads you've got British food you've got any kind of food you can think of including a McDonald's <laughs> it's just um, the dream is there it is and you can go any time so it's very easy to get kind of carried away and, you know, re- get just basically taken mm. in with all this exciting stuff that's happening on. And you can see a lot of athletes get distracted really easily. And um, and yeah, and then sometimes the realization of what it is that you're about to do, especially when you walk on poolside and you see for me the cube, the reality hits of being like, 
there's Michael Phelps, you know, there's yeah, it's all these top level athletes that you remember seeing on TV and it's like, they're here. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I've never and, and you're one of them before. And it's like, ah. yeah, yeah. So it's very, very strange. And I remember Mel Marshall um, was it? she had a very cool mindset going into it. She came up to me because I think she could see I was panicking and she goes, oh, hey, it's a, a right big gala, this, isn't it? <laughs> and it just made me laugh so much because you think, you know what, it is. <laughs> That's it's, all just it is. it's just another competition. It is. We're yeah. just a couple more people watching. Um, just, just a few. <laughs> <laughs> just a few, the odd one or two. Uh, but yeah, but that, you know, and it's kind of trying, you, you flip between the two mindsets. It's that sort of rabbit caught in headlights of being like, oh my goodness, this is huge. To then being like, but if you think about it, it's no different to any other competition that we're doing. Um, so, so as an athlete, you're trying to still stay in that sort of mindset of being like, yes, it's a big thing, but it is another competition and this is what we need to do. So, so yeah, so Beijing, I kind of came away feeling probably not able to achieve that what I wanted to achieve. So I made the So tell people, and... yeah, tell people what event, Sorry. what event did you qualify for, for Beijing? Yes. So I qualified for two events, the women's 400 in individual medley and the women's 200 individual medley so uh, so you had to be good at everything yes jack of all <laughs> trades but mastering none oh no <laughs> so don't say that it was all good um but no I kind of liked it because it didn't I always find certain events had set body shapes and sizes and for me I'm quite small and quite like just tiny mm -hmm. so sprint events were always out of the question because I was you know you dive in and if you're up against someone who's six foot like they're You've already, already down the pool. <laughs> yeah <laughs> I always wanted to be a sprinter because it looked like such a cool event but it just wasn't my body type um and I was always more sort of middle distance endurance based because I could just keep ticking over and the 400 IM was great because you could be a strong flyer or a strong breaststroke or a strong freestyle it was like chess you kind of played your strengths and weaknesses against your opponents and mm -hmm. um and that suited my personality and my sort of body shape more. So yeah, so 400 IM is always day one. I uh, competed on that, made the, uh, swam the heats, made the final. So going into the first Olympic final and I was nervous. I was really, really nervous. And you know, this, the final was fine, but I expected a lot more of myself and I definitely mm -hmm. came away feeling quite disappointed, but you know, it was a learning curve. It was, yeah. you know, experience of being like, this is the Olympics. And then once it finishes, it's amazing how you have that buildup of four years of being like, this is Olympics, going to try and make it. Could we, could we not? Yes, we're going. Kit, this, that, and the other. And then it just stops and the whole world's like, right, what's next? And they move on. And as an athlete, well, you're you... kind of left being like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. The, the great thing about you, and I think it's a, a testament to your mindset and your resilience is that you went to three Olympic games and you improved all three. Yeah. <laughs> I think you didn't I know you've been very outspoken about how the Olympic medal eluded you but you got sixth fifth fourth you still improved but I what did, was it what was it like comparing your last Olympic games to your first how because there must have been you must have put so much pressure on yourself yes there is as, as you the more experience and exposure you get to competitions you always have expectations especially if it goes well sometimes it's something sometimes more detrimental if it does go well because then it's like how do I repeat that and the funny thing is is you are never going to be that same person again so you have to adapt and grow to the new circumstances because you're going to be older the training background is going to be different your you know um stuff out with your control is going to be different you know the people that you meet the uh environment's going to be slightly different so yeah that progression is what you're always looking for but sometimes it does come down to a bit of luck as well because I always say before competition, if I get really stressed out, I always put a piece of paper in front of me, draw a line down the middle. One side, one side I put control and the other side can't control. And all this does is just help cut out the noise of my head. If I'm snowballing and overthinking and stressing out, I start listing all the things that I can control and all the listing and listing all the things that I can't control. And the funny thing is, is the one thing that I always forget to put in. And I always have to remind myself at the end is I cannot control the outcome of the swim. So even though I was improving my positioning, uh, and to be fair, I was improving my time. So the time that I uh, did in Rio uh, was a lot quicker than what I did in London, which was quicker than what I did in Beijing. So I did make that physical progression, but mm -hmm. you know, I had no control over what my other competitors were doing. So you know, as sport goes on, the group of athletes, you know, improves. Science gets better, and you kind of have to go with the flow with that improvement. Mm -hmm. But having that written piece of paper, realizing that okay 
I have no control of the outcome. I can only control what I can do. The time just happens. And I think I've come to peace with that. And that was my biggest learning curve, I think, coming from Rio. You know, 15 hundredths of a second was the difference between having that medal and coming forth. And to start with, you know, I'm not going to lie, it was bloody painful. Like it was really, really painful because it was that one dream that 12 year old me had written in my logbook. And yet, even though it wasn't gold, a medal would still have been nice. And I felt I needed that medal to define me as the athlete that I wanted to be. Mm. And I didn't, and I felt my self worth was relying on this medal. And it took me a long time, like two, three years, um, to finally come to terms with it and actually redefine and change my thinking. And it was quite traumatic in a way. And the funny thing is, is that uh, a lot of people, you know, once it finishes, the whole world moves on, but sometimes the athlete doesn't and you stay in that well, sort of mindset spent, you have to stew. you'd spent 12 years from first yeah. olympics to last olympics striving for yeah. that aiming for that one thing so it's just mm-hmm. normal that it's not going to take you you're not going to get yeah. over that in a week <laughs> exactly and i think that's why because even looking at like the winter olympics and i always deleted my social media apps before the olympics or before major competitions because more it's kind of become the more like amazing it is but how dangerous it is as well for athletes in their mindset and actually mm-hmm. I take things very personally again that literal mm. thing someone will say something to me and if it's sarcastic it'll take me a wee while to figure it out but um there are some nasty things that people can say on the internet and it really frustrates me when you see people being like oh well you know the per- so-and-so was interviewed and oh they're just happy to be there what about the medal are they not aiming to be at the medal and it's like you're just shown clip a small snippet of this individual at the end of their performance every I can guarantee you every single person who is on the plane going to Olympic Games is aiming to be on a podium but the thing is only three people in your event can and you're up against the whole world so percentage wise I think someone did work out it's something like 0.3 percent of a chance of being able to make a team and then it's even smaller to then come away as an Olympic medalist so you know, it's not something of, oh, well, just because you didn't say you wanted it, you therefore didn't get it and you deserve that. And yeah, you you do, you strive for it, but at the same time, it can be too consuming and it can really affect how you view things for yourself and the self-harm and damage that you can do mentally is massive. So trying to get that balance, I think is really, really key. So yeah. uh, yeah. I mean, even though you said like the Olympic medal eluded you that the title of being an Olympic athlete is always going to belong to you and your times and your improvement that you've made is always going to belong to you as well but one medal you did succeed in getting twice was uh, Commonwealth gold (laughs) and uh, I just want to talk really quickly about what it was like to win your Commonwealth gold at Glasgow uh, in 2014 like home home yes, commonwealth games like i i was in the city um when yeah. it was on obviously like i think the entire population of scotland um but <laughs> what was it like to do a home commonwealth games in the pool that you'd travel to you know for scottish championships etc cetera, etc cetera. you knew it well mm-hmm. what was that atmosphere like and how did it compare to the olympics I think having been to the London 2012 before that, having the experience of a home crowd, um, it's quite overwhelming in London, but I loved it. And the noise, you'll never, ever get over the noise. And I learned to use that and channel that to my advantage for Glasgow. But the funny thing is, leading into that was probably one of the worst years for me competition-wise. So for me, it was the best training I'd ever done. And I started getting my butt handed to me. Uh, by another swimmer Amy Wilmot from England mm, and mm-hmm. she was getting quicker and quicker and I was training my absolute hardest and I wasn't making any progression I was staying pretty mediocre in my eyes for my times and every time I raced her she would win and she would get faster and the distance between my so our times was getting bigger and bigger and there was a lot of expectation for me to come away with this gold medal and uh, the Commonwealth Games the 400 IM used to be on the very last day but because it was Glasgow and because they were expecting me to just win this really easily, they've moved it from the last day to the first day. And not only was it on the first day, it was the very first event and I was the first heat as well. So yeah, I, it was a lot to take in. And I was panicking because I felt very out of my depth and out of control and very frustrated that, you know, the training, as I said, what I was doing was like the best times I'd ever done. The gym sessions were going so well, but whenever it came to competing just before the Commonwealth, it was just mediocre 
and it just it just did not reflect what I was doing and I was getting very very impatient my dad was so good at this he just kept reminding me of being like no point swimming fast now you've got to swim fast at the right time he's like it's no point in doing your you know your gold medal swim in January when you need to do it in like July August so you know it's just like keep ticking over trust the process you're doing everything you can it's going to be fine and then when it came to actually race day um he took me to one side literally just before I raced and he just says you have done absolutely everything you have to do he's like I am so proud of you he says whether you come away first second third last he's like it doesn't matter he says I just want you to race he's like channel that you know seven year old Hannah who just wanted to race the person next to her and he's like just race uh that's all you have to do and I think that comfort that gave me a lot of comfort because it reminded me you know as you start going into the elite side it becomes all about the numbers you know what times you go in the alarm that you set your you know to wake up to and how far off your pb you are where are you in comparison to qualifying times like there's so many numbers and we have no control over those numbers but they control everything that we do and going into this race you know i was worrying about the times amy was doing and what times i was doing and ultimately all I needed to do was just race. So walking out for that final, um, I had headphones in, but there's no point having headphones in because you can't hear the music. The noise was so loud, which was really cool. But, you know, I was quite nervous and I made the decision just before I got behind the block that I had to change my race strategy. So normally when I race, uh, I hold back a little bit on the first half of the race. So my butterfly, I'm normally touching, you know, maybe last at a- 100 and then as each of the 100 meters progress I start you know coming through so my sec my strongest part of the race is always my second half of the swim so I decided you know what I'm gonna have to try and change this up and do something different and I ended up going out really hard um well yeah I ended up going out quick I wouldn't say hard because I was able to hang on but um put it in perspective my personal best for just 100 meters fly a max sprint effort on its own I think it was like a, a one minute and one second point nine. So one or one point nine. I went out in a wide two point one. So I was only like two. I can only imagine your dad. Away. I can just imagine your dad's face <laughs> at the side going, what the hell is she doing? Like she still has a full 300 meters to come. I know. So I think because the race strategy I've been used before, Amy was using against me. So she would always know mm. she had to be ahead of me at the hundred to get in front. So I thought I'm going to have to do something about this and go in front as this time round. Whether it's going to pay off or not, I don't know. And, and it did. I remember turning. <laughs> yeah. And it was a 300 meter mark. So I was turning from breaststroke onto freestyle. And I thought, right, I need to be ahead. If I'm ahead, I've got this. And I remember turning and I could see her feet. And I thought, pants. Right. OK, well, you know, silver, it's fine. I'm still going to hang on, see how close I can keep it. And I remember seeing her feet then become her knees and then become her hips. And then coming into that last turn, it was like, I can see her. Like, I can literally see her breathing. Tumble, turn and push off. And I will never forget the noise underwater. Like, you don't know how hard it is to hear sound. Like, if you've got sound underwater, you can hear it. But sound out the water to then hear it in the water is really really hard especially because you've got your cap on you've got the rush of the yes. water like you're yep. moving under the water yeah yep. and it was just an uproar and that just carried me home like I was in agony like my arms were on fire my legs were on fire my lungs was burning and it was like ah, I'll just get this race finished but it just that noise just carried me home right to the very end and touching the wall and seeing that I'd done it, that I'd achieved what, you know, the big expectation and pressure that I put on myself, that I think the nation had put on me, my governing body. Yeah, because Um, I know a lot of Americans will be listening to this podcast, so you might not know what the Commonwealth Games is. It's basically like a mini Olympics um, for the Commonwealth Nations. It's like the Pan-Pacific Games. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the Pan-Packs, I think they've got, because they go against uh, Australia and Canada um, and South America, I think. Mm -hmm. So it's like the Pan-Packs version of, yeah, yeah, for us. And we don't compete as team GB in the Commonwealth Games. Nope. We compete separately. So you were competing for team Scotland and Amy Wilmot was competing for team England. So when I yep. say that noise that Hannah was describing, every single person in that building was screaming for Hannah. Every yeah. single person was behind <laughs> her. So yeah, I can only imagine what that felt like. And then what the noise must have been when you touched first. 
It was so emotional. I mean, I, I as well when you finish, you get a lot of athletes that you sit on the lane rope and they want to show off their muscles. And not that I have big muscles, but I thought this is my moment. <laughs> I'm going to sit on the lane rope and just soak up the noise and take it all in. <laughs> and it's forever cemented on YouTube, I think, as well. I sat on the lane rope and just fell straight off. Like it's really hard <laughs> to sit on the lane rope. It's really difficult. <laughs> That's hilarious. So yeah, I think I. I think I managed to get myself to sit on it but yeah the, the noise was just incredible and you're just hit with this sort of huge moment of decompression and relief because and that you don't realize that you've been holding this tension for so long and it was once it was done you just realize oh, okay my shoulders are further away from my ears and more relaxed yeah <laughs> and just soaking it up and yeah you know bawled my eyes out on the, the uh, podium singing the national <laughs> anthem because it it was just, it meant a lot because I think it was the work and the effort and the doubt that I had going into that and realizing that, you know what, I had it in me and I just needed to trust and believe in myself a little bit more. And yeah. if my dad hadn't been that person to remind me of that, I wouldn't be in that position. Um, so, you know, it taught me an awful lot about that sort of self-trust, self-respect and self-love as well because uh, that is just as important because um, I feel that there's three key things as any athlete uh, and it probably could be put into any situation as well but this you know got a pie chart a circle split into three sort of th uh, thirds you've got technique physiology and psychology and each section of the pie can like vary depending on what phase or stage of the cycle that you're in leading into like a major competition like a Commonwealth Games or an Olympics the physiology and the technique side becomes smaller because that's what you spent the year doing. And it's all about the psychology. You've done the physical prep. It's about prepping your mindset so that you can allow that physical prep to come through because it's amazing how much you can be physically hundred percent ready, but yeah. if the mind's not in the right place, it can make a really big impact. I love that analogy. I think that's something that's that a lot of people should definitely um, take to heart. And mindset is something that you're taught a lot you know as you kind of go up through the ranks um but yeah. you know I think nowadays conversation around mental the mental health of athletes is becoming a lot more yeah. important and a lot more prevalent yeah. um you very recently made the decision to <laughs> retire um from yeah. swimming I can only imagine you know what that feels like with regards to identity crisis and you know the movement of your goals and everything you know where are you going to go next from there and I remember when I was lucky enough to swim with you at one point in my life um you were known <laughs> as smiley miley you know you were yeah. always positive always optimistic the epitome of a team player um but what was because you are a very quiet person, you know, in yourself, but what, what was your mindset like leading up to that decision of, you know what, I've done it. My career has been great. I'm grateful for what it was and now I'm going to move on. So it kind of started uh, actually just before COVID had hit. Um, so I was trying to go for my fourth Olympics, but I was having some major shoulder issues. Uh, I was in a lot of pain, my left-hand side. Uh, I was just it was really, really difficult. There were so many issues that were wrong with it and we could never pinpoint what the issue was. I was losing a lot of power, which then was impacting my training, which was impacting my performance in competition. And it was just impacting my mindset because it was just frustrating because I just wanted it to be better. And I wanted to know what it was in order to make it better. And the amount of shoulder work and exercises I've been doing, because I've been told, oh, it's just a weakness, just needs strengthening. And I feel like I've been trying to strengthen this for the last like four or five years. Why isn't it stronger? Um, and you had scans and it always came out. Yeah, you're fine. Shoulders really healthy. And deep down, I was like, there's something there. There's, I was like, it's not. There really isn't. And it was really difficult to get someone to hear me. So in March, we had a competition in Edinburgh and I raced there. And it's the first time ever that I actually had to withdraw from the final for the 400 IM because my shoulder was in bits I I could not swim and I was in agony and I was in tears like it was the first time it reduced me to tears and I had to go to my dad and say I can't do the final it's really like it's not fair like I, I'm either going to be making it worse I'm going to make my head worse because I'm just not going to perform to the way that I want to and it's just going to mess with me both mentally and physically so we withdrew and went to go and see uh, my physio and then COVID hit 
So we kind of thought, you know what, this has come at a good time because maybe a bit of rest is possibly what it needs. Yeah. Um, and then obviously we were out with the pool. So we were trying to find different ways to stay fit. So I, you know, did some land work and my shoulders started subluxating. So basically it just started popping out the joint and back in again. <laughs> so I went to put my jacket on and it would fall out. <laughs> oh my goodness. And then it would pop back in again. And that was when I was like, this isn't normal. Um, this really isn't normal that I've got to see someone. So I went to get some scans again, came back. Nope, it's all good. I had dye injected in it as well. Really sore. But um, yep, can't see anything. No issues, no wear and tear. And it was like, right, so we're possibly looking at some you know, psychological intervention. It's possibly just a nerve that maybe is hypersensitive and we just need to train you to stop overreacting to it. Mm-hmm. And that was really hard to hear because I just thought, oh, is there something wrong with my yeah. head? Um, and I got given a second opinion. So I went down to Manchester. Uh, so I drove down and um, I only had like a 30 minute appointment. So it's like, you know, an eight hour drive down yeah. first 10 minutes I was in. The guy wasn't even in the office. He was not there. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, like I really need this. This means a lot. <laughs> I know. Where's he gone? And he came back through. He's like, I'm really sorry. I was just speaking to my radiologist. And he showed me uh, the x-ray or the, sorry, this um, MRI scan that I had done uh recently and was told was fine he brought that up and he says right you see this big this little white line here and he zoomed in on it and he says that's a tear he's like you've torn your subscapularis like quite significantly it's a small muscle and you know he says I'm looking at about a two centimeter tear and I remember just being hit with like relief because it's like I finally have an answer and I'm like okay I was right there was something wrong and then the emotion of but what does that put me for trying to qualify for my you know an Olympic Games because mm-hmm. we told it was you know a year and I thought you know I've got this year to kind of play around with but I've been told that if I was to opt for shoulder surgery that's going to take a year meaning it would pretty much you know ruin your ruin chances me out. for Tokyo yeah so I was having to battle with that decision and I remember sitting in the car just bawling my eyes out crying purely because I was relieved I finally had the answer but absolutely devastated that it was only now that we figured it out and he said as well which also I kind of wish he maybe hadn't told me was uh I'd been to see him about four years ago for a scan uh for the same shoulder with the start of the the issue and he said that the tear was there but it was tiny and he says just the last four years it's just gone and torn more and more and he's like, I genuinely don't know how you've been able to actually go through the career that you've done for the last four years um, with the shoulder and the state that it's in. Uh, he's like, you know, you've got two options. He's like, you can keep going as you are because he's like, you know, I can fix it in whatever state that you're in or you can get it done now. And he says, it doesn't matter. It's completely in your hands. So I had toyed with a decision to delay it to wait until I qualify because then at least I knew what it was like and how to deal with it but then part Mm. of me was like you know what I need to stop and actually look after my future self Mm -hmm. um and you know as much as I wanted to go for a fourth game I was like my long-term health and well-being is so much more Mm -hmm. important than this so I opted to get the operation done and that had to be done in October 2020 so I kind of used the, we had trials for the Olympic trials in 2021 by April time. So I think it was about six months after. And I was obviously only halfway through my rehab, but I used that as a target to get myself through the rehab. So I still had the mindset of, I could still qualify. You know, I kind of thought, you know what, if I make it, it's going to be one hell of a story. But at the same time, you know, I was realistic in that, you know, the chances are very slim, but I might as well just give it a shot. And actually that opened myself up a lot more. It was made me vulnerable because I've never been in a position where I am not going to be that top performing athlete that I'm used to being. I'm going to mm-hmm. get myself, you know, uh, beat quite a fair bit, but it's about those little progressions and that little step and staying true to what my physios are saying, what the doctors are saying and the rehab process behind that. And yeah. And then once I done the Olympic trials, didn't qualify, we had a second chance in June. And once I didn't qualify there, it took a weight off my shoulders because it gave me the answer of, okay, I'm not going to Tokyo this summer. Whether to continue afterwards or not, I kind of knew in my head, I didn't want to go beyond Tokyo. Um, 
but I didn't feel ready to fully make that decision yet. So I continued training, getting back after the summer. And I really enjoyed the training side of it, but I think it was just the competing. I felt I'd done everything that I possibly could to compete to get me to the level that I needed to be at. And I was like, you know what? I think comp- competitively I'm done. So I had one yeah. last competition, which I didn't tell anybody other than my fiance and my dad, um, obviously my family knew about this being my last competition. And it felt like I come full circle. So the pool that I used to train in, Inverary, four lane, 25 meter pool, taking me to three Olympic games, had been knocked down. So it's completely flattened. And they oh, have no. a brand new, I know, <laughs> but they have <laughs> a brand new facility. So they basically refurbed the academy and the sports center and basically kind of created this integrated community center with uh, the academy or school attached to it. Um, so and it's a lovely facility, you know, it's been a long time coming for them. They're not going to have any boiler issues that we used yeah. to have. And, you know, it's very state of the art. And I swam my 400 IM there knowing that, you know what, I kind of feel like the legacy that I've had now. You're bringing it home. over. Yeah, bringing it home. You know, my first race was done in Inverurie. My last race is going to be done in Inverurie. And what better way to kind of sign off in that sort of sense. So for me, I was a, I felt happy to step away from it. And it, it, yeah, the emotions that kind of come with that have been very hard because I've always been a swimmer. I thought I'll be fine. You know, I'm ready for this. I know I'm ready for this. And it was 1st of December that I retired. Then it's only been like two and a bit months, but it's been hard, <laughs> really yeah. hard. So I've allowed myself to swim twice a week. And it's actually been nice to just go and train and just do it for my mental health and well-being and fitness instead of being like all guns blazing times protocols like all the little nitty gritty bit I can be a bit more relaxed and free-flowing but I felt a little bit lost um you know I I was always so sure of who I was and what I did my routine you know being able to plan out and my whole life was on a spreadsheet I could predict what competitions I was going to be doing what I was targeting and aiming for and now it's kind of like the novelty of having that free time is starting to kind of wane a little bit and panic sets in every now and then where it's like what am I doing because for me success for me to have a successful day you know I know I had to have worked myself physically and mentally so that I'm just so tired that all I should do is just eat and sleep whereas now when I finish I don't feel like that and it's like you know I've not worked myself physically and emotionally and mentally <laughs> to the point where I'm so tired and I'm like have I f- had a fulfilling day I don't know so my version of what success is I'm still having to figure out like what computes to being a good day I I don't know it will take time yeah it takes time and it needs to get settled and a lot of people ask me you know oh so what you're going to do what you're doing and kind of no pun intended but I'm floating a little bit I've got a couple (laughs) of little things that are kind of happening um but yeah so you're you're the co-host on on a podcast we spoke about that before we we started recording yes so uh, I offered to help out uh, Lauren Quigley, who set up a podcast called The Honest Athlete, where we get to talk about a couple of topics that athletes will go through, um, some bits on our own personal stories, because Lauren's an uh, ex-international GB athlete, a backstroker as well, and I'm a medley swimmer. So we have some fun reminiscing on some stories. We interview a couple of other athletes to hear their stories as well. And it's not necessarily aiming to interview the gold medalists. It's those who actually have been successful in their sport. but hearing it from their perspective so we've got a couple of like snow sports we got uh, Ben Kilner from um, snowboarding Charlene Joyner from uh, cycling um, Lauren's interviewed like Laura Steadman as well triathlete so you know we can learn an awful lot from other people so it's actually been really fun as you might have gathered from this podcast I can talk the hind legs off the donkey <laughs> so it's kind of been nice to uh, have use of it of some sort and uh, I'm going to help commentate at the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham 2022 so, oh, so the commentating exciting. and yeah talking so there's little bits like that and I need to be a bit more confident in myself I need to kind of actually give myself a bit more credit for what I have yeah. I'm very quick to be quite critical of what I'm not doing right but I think mm. that is that elite athlete mindset of you know you have to be blunt and quite brutal and actually I need to take care of myself a little bit more mentally. yeah and give yourself um, give yourself grace with the decision as well because it's yeah. such it's such <laughs> a massive decision to make and you know, I'm not comparing my decision to leave working with killer rails as someone leaving a sport that's been part of their life for, for 20 years. But it's but similar. It is similar. It's so wound you know? up in your identity. Like yeah. you, 
like you will have have defined yourself Hannah Miley the swimmer and it's not just how you view yourself the whole world views you as that everyone Mm -hmm. that you know or knows you associates you with that thing so now that that thing is no longer part of your life you start to kind of question well well, who I am who am I now like who am I without Mm -hmm. this but please just let me tell you like if it means anything it will get better you know yeah I'm going on a year and a half after making the decision and there's still moments where it's really hard but what gets you through it is talking about those incredible memories and no one can take it away from you you know what you've achieved what you've done those moments that you've had they're always going to be there they're always going to be part of your life and now you get to have the luxury of finding another dream that you're just as passionate about exactly and that's kind of one of the things I have enjoyed is actually having the time to try things out so I've uh, I've got a huge passion for female health and working around like the menstrual cycle and actually the information I had when I was younger like is so much better now and just being able to have open conversations and just to help both the athletes and coaches so I am currently working on trying to create workshops that breaks down some of the barriers about the conversations and how we can adapt amazing um, and empower some of the girls as well to feel like you don't have to suffer through it, allow them to hopefully identify red flags so that future health wise, you know, if they have endometriosis or polycystic ovary syndrome, like anything like that, you know, can be easily picked up instead of just having to endure discomfort and pain and yeah. feeling less of an individual because something's not right but they're you know they're told that this is normal when really actually it isn't so Mm -hmm. you know and and hopefully as well to try and recruit other athletes or those who are still interested in the topic to then be able to deliver the content but share their own personal story too so at the minute it's just me delivering my story and experience as a female athlete um but I'd love to be able to recruit others that would do the same that could be open to sharing their story but still offering the educational package around it too. So I've enjoyed kind of researching that and helping out. Um, that sounds so, side, so worthwhile. It <laughs> sounds so worthwhile. Yeah. And as I say, the, the research behind it now is so much more because I think we are starting to open up the conversation and it'll get to the point where sometimes there might be too much info and you're going to have a lot of conflicting information. So I think it's important to be able to lay it out there because each person is going to go through their own individual journey with it. So it's, helping them identify the sort of rough norms where they fit in and what their normal is and then if it falls out with that you know strategies to help like a toolkit how to manage it how to get the most out of their performance Um, and it's not just for sports you know the performance can still apply to you know being in work because for us you know we've got through like four or five different stages in our lifetime you've got childhood where hormone levels are nice and normal teenage where it kind of goes all over the place and then it settles out and then our reproductive years which, you know, we have a regular cycle, then we get pregnant, we got that other um, avenue to kind of enjoy lots of different things happen there, and then perimenopause and menopause. So our bodies are constantly changing. And, you know, I think sometimes it can be quite scary and overwhelming. So, you know, the more information and the more comfort we can give and empower girls and women to feel comfortable in themselves and feel that they're able to make the decision based on what they need. Um, That's amazing. And And so well-being. Yeah, it sounds so worthwhile and so, so amazing. And I I wish you all of the best of luck with that. And I hope that it becomes fruitful and useful um, to young girls and women um, who need that information. Um, But this has been an incredible episode. I feel like everyone who has listened is going to have learned so much, not just about you, but about mindset and mindfulness and determination, resilience. Um, and I'm just so excited to see what conversations uh, that brings forth. So I have to say thank you so much once again for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much for having me. Really enjoyed the talk. <laughs> of course, anytime. <laughs> So if you have enjoyed this week's episode, please do not forget to like, rate, and subscribe. And I will see you all again next week.